0: My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford, and welcome to Neurotalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. At the end of this podcast, we'll also have an announcement about the future of Neurotalk, so listen to the end to hear about it. This week, our guest is Tim Ryan. A professor in the Department of Biochemistry at Weill Cornell Medical College. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Ryan.
1: Thank you. My pleasure to be here.
0: So could you first just tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up and when you decided you wanted to become a scientist?
1: I grew up in Ottawa, Canada. I think I, I sort of knew I was interested in science pretty early on because uh, my father was a professor in academia and biochemistry. My uncle was a psychologist. My grandfather was an entomologist. And so it was sort of in our DNA that these were fun pursuits. And that's so why I headed in that direction, I think.
0: So you started in undergrad. You were a physics major. Is that correct? That's correct. I went to McGill. Yeah. So, But then you veered back towards your father.
1: That was not intentional. <laughs> so I was in undergrad and even a graduate student in physics. And I love studying the fundamentals of how things work. And I think like many undergraduates in physics, what you, what you really learn are sort of not so much experimentation. You do cool lab work, but you learn about the formalism of the laws of of nature and you think you want to contribute to that. And you you slowly come to the realization that the number of people that continue to make contributions about the formalism of nature is pretty rarefied. And uh, and I realized I wasn't going to be one of them, but I still love physics. And I decided to go into more experiment. And I uh, did a couple of years where I worked in high energy physics, working at a little bit at Slack on your campus, as well as mostly at Fermilab. And it was during that time that I realized that Particle physics was very long feedback loops between an idea and conception and execution. (laughs) After I did a couple of years of that, I decided to go off to graduate school, and I went to Cornell in Ithaca, where I had originally intended I applied there partly because they had an on-site accelerator. And I thought, oh, I didn't like living in Batavia, Illinois. That was no fun. So the only two options are really Stanford or Cornell that had local ones. By the time I actually went, I knew that I didn't want to do particle physics. I wanted to do something else.
0: Yeah. So you're something like my science uncle in that you did your PhD in the lab of Watt Webb at Cornell, where my old advisor, David Tank, received his PhD. And then you did a postdoc with Stephen Smith here at Stanford and Stephen and Watt have pretty different personalities, I'd say, and although they're both known for their expertise in the development of imaging methods, I'm wondering if you could take us back to where you were as a graduate student deciding where to do a postdoc and what led you to join Stephen's lab.
1: There are some similarities between Watt and Stephen. One of the things they both have in common, they're very different personalities, that's for sure, but one thing they both have in common is this remarkable ability to see pretty far into the future and imagine what things will be like beyond what I would say most mortals are like. (laughs) Uh, Most of us keep our nose to the ground and worry about tomorrow's experiment and getting it done. And I would say in both cases, those guys like to cast quite a bit further ahead in guiding sort of what they're thinking about. Anyway, so that's as the comparison of those guys. I became sort of fascinated... With just, I had never been exposed to really any biology as an undergrad. And even as a graduate student, I slowly became more and more exposed to it being in the web environment because he had all kinds of things going on. I had actually read, believe it or not, a paper of David Tanks. Uh, it was his first neural network paper with John Hopfield. And uh, we just had a, a preprint <laughs> floating around the lab that he had sent. And that just—I thought this is the coolest application of physics, thinking about sort of you know attractor models of networks and things—and I thought this is the coolest thing. But I didn't really know much about neurons or what these simplified parts were, and I and I just became so interested. And it actually, I heard Stephen Smith give a seminar one day when I was a graduate student. And you know, it was uh, it was a long time ago when he was looking at growth cone mechanics in aplegia bag cell neurons, and I just thought, oh, here's a here's some interesting what looked like tractable types of problems you could work on that are about sort of cellular biophysics. And partly that's when I decided working on how neurons work, I thought would be fun.
0: Hmm. So when you were in Watts lab, you overlapped with a number of prominent people, right? I mean, Winfred Dank, for example. Yes, Winfred them.
1: and I were contemporaries pretty much the whole time we were both in graduate school. We, we, gradu- we actually defended our thesis the same day.
0: <laughs> so there's a kind of tale, Winfred uh, came up with two-photon microscopy with WAP, or I mean, you probably know the tale better than I, but in the time that you were in graduate yes. school, yeah. and I've heard David talk about arguments that the lab had that it was impossible to work from sort of first physics principles of the amount of power that you would need to, to generate this kind of thing.
1: Uh, Yeah, no, there there were arguments like that. You know, it was all pretty hypothetical. I could be corrected because we're sort of going back in history of recollections, but you know, the the first femtosecond pulse lasers weren't commercially available. And there were only a handful of people that did it. In fact, there was a, a guy at Bell Labs who was doing femtosecond pulses. So I think it was fair to say that. The amount of power you would need was inconceivable because no one was conceiving that you could have a femtosecond laser. <laughs>
0: gotcha. So Dan Dobbeck, another Web Lab alumni, has told me that basically everyone in the lab had to do some work on imaging voltage sensitive molecules at some point in their tenure. And everyone would make their small contribution and get kind of frustrated and then, and then move on. And indeed, looking over your publication list, I see that there's a voltage imaging paper in there. But in the last few years, there really have been some tremendous strides made in this area to the point where your lab actually is using voltage-sensitive imaging to answer biological questions related to the mechanisms of synaptic transmission. Could you give listeners an overview of what what has happened in the field to make this a viable technique for you to use, and then tell us a little bit about how you're using this technology in the lab and towards what sorts of questions?
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Just like Dom Dombek uh, asked me, I too was given an initial problem of working on voltage-sensitive dyes because WebEd had a transient success (laughs) on a very early one of a student successfully working at a mechanism of how it could sense voltage sort of because of the success of that student who was about a decade before me and it's still an important problem. I did some experiments that I was on a paper with a postdoc but I realized that you know these are really hard and ultimately everyone thought that they wanted to use them for neuroscience. And it was very easy to do the calculations that, oh, we're now talking about sub-millisecond timescales, and you just do the quick calculation like, oh, the kind of signals changes you're going to see, you're going to have to beat down the noise with enough photons, and these dyes would simply not last long enough. Uh, That was the very first thing. A number of things changed over the years. People have pulled off successful dye measurements, obviously, over the years by improving lots of pieces of the technology. Some of the dye chemistry was one a lot of effort went into, but also the, uh, the optical technology, just the efficiency in collecting photons slowly got better over the years to the point where depending on the situation, you know, there are really excellent detectors out there. You really are maximizing how many of these things you're getting out of a microscope. We came across this very recently. We were forced into it because we were facing a scientific problem about a result we had from a high-profile paper about trying to make synapses have more calcium channels. And we were getting a nonsensical result that when we measured calcium influx, which is pretty mature technology, we realized that putting more calcium channels was giving us lower calcium influx, and it made no sense to us whatsoever. And our one out was that maybe the action potential was being changed as well at the nerve terminal.
0: The logic there being that the voltage-sensitive calcium channels are not opening as robustly due to some change in the dynamics of voltage. That's right.
1: I was actually kind of reluctant to get into it again, because even though technology had come a long way, putting dyes on cells, is a people have done it. But uh, there are very few examples where people have been able to do it more beyond a proof of principle <laughs> where, you know, where it has to work well enough like, okay, now I'm going to go and do a whole bunch of measurements under a whole bunch of conditions and make comparisons. Although it has been done, it's not nearly as common because the challenge of the dye is not being very stable. And also the fact that when you put a dye on the outside of a cell, a voltage change depends on how much of it is sitting on the plasma membrane versus an internal organelle. And from the moment you put the dye on, that's slowly changing over time because the cell begins to eat these dyes. And a postdoc of mine had had heard a a postdoc of Adam Cohen at the neuroscience meeting, and Adam had even published a little trace in the abstract (laughs) that went online. And as soon as I saw the trace, I realized, oh, this actually might be good enough. And uh, we just ordered the thing from Adgene. We had not yet read the paper because it wasn't out. And we just sort of cobbled things together and started to figure out how to use it. And so this was archaeorhodopsin, which was a sort of a game changer because I realized that it was completely stable. It has no phototoxicity. It has a number of true challenges associated with it, but not that can't be overcome. And we realized that this suddenly we could use this. And so, in fact, now we've finally resolved this paradox. There are no question that the manipulations we were using to change calcium channels was clearly leading to changes what I call an adaptive plasticity of the exponential waveform.
0: It's kind of interesting that, you know, in contrast to calcium sensors, which synthetic calcium sensors far outstripped genetically encoded ones for for many, many years, there sort of wasn't even a useful, really useful synthetic voltage sensor out there and then a genetically encoded sensor suddenly becomes the first
1: yeah and I think it's just the start, truthfully, it's the it'll be the resurgence. I mean, Arch has some really nice properties. The fact that it doesn't photo bleach, as you can well appreciate, is pretty handy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know what's ironic in all this is that the guy who contributed without question the most to the development of synthetic calcium sensors is Roger Chen. And what his thesis project was was to develop a synthetic voltage sensor.
0: <laughs> <That's funny. laughs>
1: And, you know, he worked on it and he's always sort of come back to it over the years with literature. He's made constant contributions to this as well. I think the the calcium thing that took off because it's also such an important metabolite.
0: Yeah. So for the last two years, you have served as the co-director for the Woods Hole Neurobiology course. And in addition, each summer you and one of your students or postdocs have come and set up shop to do a mini two-week project with the students in the course. Yep. Since it seems like quite a bit of effort taking away from your primary research interest for some time, I'm wondering what benefits you've drawn from uh, teaching this course and what are some of the projects you've devised?
1: I love going there for lots of reasons. And there's no question there is a price one pays. I take probably, to ensure success, I take one of my best people, <laughs> which means I take the person who's the most productive out of production <laughs> and dedicated to an educational effort. What is really positive is that for the weeks, I spend about five weeks total at Woods Hole in the summers. But honestly, you get exposed to so many people. And just an example, it's it's so refreshing to bounce your ideas off of people and actually be able to have, it's more than just an hour at a conference. You're there for a couple of weeks with the same faces. And you, you can talk about something and the next day you say, oh, I thought about this, this is a better way to do it. And in many cases, you're actually doing experiments there. So there's a rapid feedback and it's just this constant input from people that are not thinking about your problem normally, but are willing to think about it and will think about it and vice versa. I mean, I am I love hearing about other people's work and, you know, I'm happy to challenge people on on whatever and see what's the point of doing whatever they're doing. So it's a very fertile intellectual environment. It's really fun. I mean, it just makes science so much fun. And I find that doing it out of the context of my lab where, you know, I love my lab, but it's at a university and I, you know, I have jobs at this university beyond just running my lab and they tend to be they consume a lot of your effort and psychological space. Suddenly just physically going to this place, you know, uh, in Woods Hole, I kind of leave most of that stuff behind, and it's just about, you know, the problems of running the course, but also the science. And I find it's it's really refreshing. It recharges scientific ideas. Uh, I re- really enjoy it. I, I will miss it when I'm not doing it.
0: Yes. Yeah, so what are some of the things you've done with the students?
1: We study, as you probably know, the function of nerve terminals and how they work, and so we've been pushing lots of the optical technology to do that. So, I mean, what's been exciting is actually for the last for this year and last year, and I can't remember if we did it the year before. But we actually set up voltage-sensitive archaea imaging experiments. And last year, the students were attempting to measure, and I, you know, it's a two-week thing, and they they pull it off. I wouldn't say we're ready to publish when <laughs> when we're finished, but. Which was to see whether or not classical G protein based modulation, for example, you know things like uh, adenosine or something like that, or in particular opiates was the one we focused on last year. These have profound effects on changing presynaptic function, and we know for sure one of the things they affect is calcium entry. And we actually verify that, so we set up calcium measurements as well and impact, but. What was really exciting, we also were curious, was this having an effect on local action potentials? Could these modulators have other functions, which is changing the shape of the waveform, presumably by working on potassium or sodium channels? We actually concluded they did not seem to do that, but this is, again, one of these things that's unknown. We don't know the answer. We have the technology to get the answer. So either way, we're fine with the answer as long as we can pull it off. uh, So the students get to see something totally state-of-the-art where there aren't really any other labs I know of that are even trying to answer that kind of question. And it's a curiosity a little bit, but there are lots of things like this that one could imagine trying to go after.
0: Yeah. So earlier this year, your lab published a paper where you described a new method for quantitatively measuring ATP synthesis at the synapse. Yes. And while it was assumed that synaptic activity requires a large amount of energy, it was unclear if the ATP was being locally synthesized at the synapse, and how the availability of ATP affects synaptic function, and how synaptic function in turn affects the synthesis of ATP. So your paper was the first to address all of these questions. Could you describe the method you developed and what you were able to find?
1: Yes. That was a a project that uh, requires patience. It started about four or five years ago, and uh, the method we ultimately used was to build an ATP sensor based on the enzyme luciferase encoded, the one that comes from the North American firefly, because that enzyme uses as one of its substrates to produce light luminescence is ATP. It uses two substrates, you know, magnesium ATP and another small molecule called luciferin. And we simply reasoned that maybe we could basically count the photons coming off the synapse as a surrogate of how much ATP is present at the synapse, if we could figure out the other details, like how many copies of enzyme are there, and under sort of fixed concentration. What was unusual is that where one doesn't normally think of doing microscopic imaging of luminescence because there are very few photons coming off of these enzymes typically. But the technologies are so good, we thought we could give it a shot. We, and we had to make a few tweaks to get it to work well enough, which was to stuff enough copies of the enzyme down in nerve terminals by hooking it up to a vesicle protein. And really that sort of pushed it over the edge. And we also add a fluorescent protein to the enzyme as well so that we can take a fluorescence image to tell us how many enzymes are there and if you will, the ratio of luminescence and fluorescence becomes the reporter of ATP, which we were able to calibrate and show.
0: Yeah. Were you concerned at all that you would pack so much uh, luciferase enzyme that it would actually be a a sizable sink of ATP?
1: Yes. Not only were we concerned, but that was an immediate question of a reviewer. (laughs) But luckily, because this is all pretty quantitative, one, we were able to calibrate it. And so the answer came in the fact that, We know the absolute concentrations, or we have estimates now, the absolute concentrations of ATP. And we came up with numbers that were quite reassuring because they seemed reasonable. They were in the millimolar range between one and two millimolar, which is what everyone sort of expected it would be. And we know what volumes we're looking at inside our nerve terminals. So the other thing is that we know how many ATPs are luciferase because for every photon that's given off, we know... It consumed about, you know, 1.6 ATPs. It has a Mm -hmm. certain quantum yield. We know how many photons we're getting as well. (laughs) And so we were able to calculate back what was the total ATP consumed per minute by our probe. And that turns out to be a a tiny fraction of what's there. So we got lucky. We didn't know where we'd be when we started.
0: Okay, so what conclusions did you come to about the way synapses use and produce ATP?
1: Uh, So the, the biggest, I would say, unknown to us going in, which we felt comfortable of having resolved, was that we sort of had this view that probably you know, ATP, everyone accepts the importance of ATP in many, many steps associated with neuron function and synapse function. But the thought was always that, oh, don't worry, ATP is probably kept at very high levels to guarantee that it's always going to work. And that certainly was a possibility as if you sort of always have the available electricity to keep the thing running, right? The synapse never gets tired. The synapse would never get tired. But in fact, what we discovered, uh, there's two major things that one is that, in fact, the synapse would get very tired if it weren't for the fact that it has its local gen- own local generators <laughs> and that it turns the action potential into the production of ATP so it knows to make the ATP only on demand. I mean, it's making it otherwise, but it's especially making it on demand. And if you don't allow synapses to make it on demand, then quickly they fatigue and they run out of ATP and they really stop functioning very early on in the process. The other thing that was unexpected to us is we asked who were the consumers of ATP and we did this through some sort of fairly clever experiments that dissect who's eating the ATP there. And the expectation there, if you sort of read most textbook views of this, is that it would probably be the action of restoring the ion gradients you need for action potentials. Because with every action potential, you disturb those gradients, you begin to relax them, you need to reestablish them. And there have been lots of calculations done about how big a burden that might be in the brain, because and that's done by a sodium-potassium pump. And since this you know, activity is ongoing all the time, These things have to be running all the time, and it's sort of on the order of an ATP per ion exchange, something like that. And so that was always thought to be the big guy. So uh, we were able to determine that actually that's really not the big one when you get to a synapse. It turns out that the major consumer is unfortunately the active of using synaptic residues. And so we were able to do experiments, for example, if you completely eliminate the ability of a synapse to exocytose.: We eliminated exocytosis in a couple of ways, genetically, with either a toxin or removing a key protein. We discovered that ATP levels, chronically, if you do that for a few days, they, they almost tripled. <laughs> wow. So synapse had way more they had, just, they had now made more ATP than they needed, and we realized that was all dependent on the fact that it had activity as well. So that told us that activity was driving it and the the whole vesicle cycle was probably the big consumer. Mm. There were other pieces of the puzzle, but that caught us by surprise. We kind of expected, like everyone, that it would be the sodium potassium pump. So just firing action potentials would be the problem.
0: So do you think that this gives you potentially some insight into mechanisms of degeneration that might happen in certain disease states where you might have ATP building up because synapses are not working correctly, exocytosis is not working correctly, or conversely, where the action potential is not reaching the synapse.
1: We were surprised about the buildup. I don't actually imagine that the, the buildup is significant for these disease states. It might actually be a diagnostic of it, I suppose. But I think the mystery here and what we're currently working on is, what is the signal that tells a synapse to make more ATP? It's the action potential. So how does it read out voltage, right? And the answer almost always is it doesn't read out voltage. It reads out one of the sequelae, which is calcium. And so, the coupling we think is there. So, interestingly, the sensitivity we found that if you don't allow the production, we just do this synthetically by blocking glycolysis, for example, synapses shut down very quickly. So, you're highly reliant on this. So, it, it stands to reason there that the efficiency of this coupling is absolutely important. If in a disease state, you begin to loosen this coupling, you might not shut it down completely, but you may, in fact, reduce the fidelity of the connection. The analogy I like to give, and this sort of surprises people, but, and I hadn't really thought about it, is I'm sure, as Coleman, as uh Forrest, you're not the same athlete you were,
0: say, 15 years ago. Sadly, sadly, my hip has, has dramatically reduced my basketball abilities. It's true. Right.
1: As you get older, you'll discover that most people, their athletic abilities decrease, not just because the parts are wearing out in obvious ways, but ultimately because one becomes less efficient at converting fuel and oxygen into productive work. Okay. And it's not exactly clear why this happens. I mean, it's true that we this is known with aging athletes. They're you know, Lance Armstrong at his peak was this superstar at doing this, but as he ages, that's what he's become less good at. He does not his physiology is not coupling his use of oxygen and fuel the same way to muscle power. Well it turns out your brains now we realize are doing the same thing. They are converting activity to function of synapses through the production of ATP. Skeletal muscle does the same thing, cardiac muscle does the same. So you think about the aging brain—is it protected somehow? What is it about an aging muscle that changes this coupling? If the same unfortunate rules are applying in your brain, it may be uh, unfortunately a natural consequence. We're just getting a little bit weaker at this step. So I think it's going to be in a, it impels us to figure out what this coupling is like and try and understand it to see if you know there's what we can do about it. So you cast this in the role say of dementia, which is obviously. Everyone has different susceptibilities, you know, we see in the population for when dementia might set in, and some people are protected apparently into, you know, 10 decades, but most people aren't. And then there are clear causative or genetic causes we know that make you much more susceptible to others. So I think that this interface of this need for this coupling to produce ATP uh, is going to be intimately related to many of the disease states associated with neurodegeneration. I'm not just talking about a neuron dying but even, you know, it's slowly losing its ability to function correctly because it doesn't have this coupling done well. And our, our data just shows that you really aren't very tolerant to changes in this coupling. Hmm. So
0: what are some of your strategies for going after? What are the components of this coupling pathway?
1: There are a couple of ways of going forward with this. One is to immediately address, because there's so many good models, to see if there's something particular about disease states that change the coupling. For example, the other little thing that we know Just superficially, is that many of the neurodegenerative diseases also have associated mitochondrial apathies. We don't know if it's causative or if it's uh, downstream of this. But uh, we're at the deep level, we're thinking that we have to understand the coupling. And so here we're taking some lessons from the tissues where it's better understood, like muscle, uh, cardiac, and skeletal. And there it seems what's magical is that mitochondria have many sensitive enzymes that are sensitive to calcium. And what's interesting is it's a little bit complicated. Mitochondria apparently don't necessarily simply get their calcium from the cytoplasm. It's actually fed calcium from a store. So in cardiac muscle, it sits on something called the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And that's where calcium feeds the mitochondria. And the mitochondria are making ATP. You may have been thinking of mitochondria just as a calcium buffer. I suspect that it's not there really so much as a calcium buffer. It's really there that it needs to be fed calcium to control this biochemical process of making ATP. So we're going into sort of some of the mitochondrial biology and the known pieces of the calcium puzzle of how it even gets calcium into it and where calcium stores are in a neuron. You're probably not used to even thinking that an axon might have a calcium store, but it turns out they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, It's ultra an interesting area of biology that's not very well explored, so.
0: So finally, could you give us a preview of what you plan to talk about in your lecture at Stanford beyond maybe some of the things that we've discussed?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, I will, uh, since it's so new and most people haven't read papers, I will talk about the ATP because we're still excited about it. But where we left off our last exciting story about calcium channels was this uh, observation about trying to change calcium channels. So what I described to you that we discovered that there's this adaptive plasticity that changes the waveform. So I'll be going into how we make the measurements and the results we've come to, the conclusions we've come to based on these measurements.
0: Okay, great. So, in closing, we we have a series of more rapid-fire questions for you. Okay. So, if you could go back and speak to yourself as a graduate student, and I mean yourself specifically, what advice would you give yourself?
1: Oh gosh, what would I give myself? Um, probably that there's a lot more wisdom in what what, what Web has to say than I was giving him credit for. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it could, it could mentors could be frustrating, as I'm sure you've experienced. Yeah. You know, you have to take the long view of these things. And I remember specifically, and this is something that's really stuck to heart, that he always insisted no matter what data we showed him, that it be quantitative and calibrated and like in some way that you could interpret this numerically. And it was a hassle. (laughs) It was easier to show some kind of trend and like it's sort of soft. And he just yelled at every postdoc or student that tried to do this. And uh, I have to say uh, that was the best lesson. And if I had only learned it faster, I Mm -hmm. would say it would be a better thing.
0: Yeah what's the last joke you heard
1: the last joke i heard a waiter comes into a group of elderly jewish ladies having lunch and i realize this is a podcast it's not meant to offend anyone <laughs> but uh he says uh he comes up and they're you know they're all and says good afternoon ladies is there anything that's all right <laughs>
0: uh so um, what do you miss most about Stanford when you were a postdoc? What were your old uh, favorite stomping grounds here? I
1: could ride my bicycle from the Beckman Center at Stanford all the way to San Gregorio Beach ah. uh, pretty much any time I wanted to, and I, I just loved that uh, part of it. So the, the perfect climate, you know, I think every, there are lots of great scientific environments. I loved Stanford's scientific environment. I thought it was just festering, and I'm sure it's only festering more today. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was fantastic then. But in fact, you know, there are lots of great scientific environments. The one I'm in is is great as well. So,
0: Hmm. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Ryan.
1: It was my pleasure. I look forward to seeing you.
0: Yeah, and thank you all for listening. As I alluded to at the start of the podcast, Neurotalk is going to be undergoing some change. As many Stanford community members know, my advisor, Stephen Smith, is leaving to work at the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle, Washington. I will also be moving with him to work at the Allen Institute starting most likely next fall. Therefore, Neurotalk is in need of a new host next year. We'd like to invite anyone who is interested to contact me at fcolman, F-C-O-L-L-M-A-N, at stanford.edu. In order to encourage people to consider taking on this role and to express my appreciation for the opportunity, I'd like to take a moment to express what a pleasure it has been to do this show. First and foremost, although it's my voice you usually hear, Erica, Mark, and I work as a team to put this show together. The three of us collaborate on doing research on the speaker's background and putting together questions that we hope will elicit some interesting stories from our guests. Erica, in particular, does a tremendous amount of the heavy lifting, not only with question development, but also doing the bulk of the editing, including subtracting out many of the awkward ums and stumbles of my speech. Erica and Mark will continue to be a part of the show next year, and so whoever steps in to host will continue to have their amazing support. Second, for me, this has been an amazing opportunity to meet and chat with a wide variety of important neuroscientists, all of whom are pretty interesting people. Over the course of the 30 or so interviews we've done so far, I've gained a greater appreciation for the breadth and variety of research that is relevant to our understanding of the brain. It also has given me a taste of how truly diverse the trajectories of scientists are, not only through their science, but also through their lives. Hearing about unemployed and reformed rocker Jeff Isaacson cold-calling Dick Chen at his office at Yale, or hearing about Shi Jin growing up during the Cultural Revolution, looking for even partial pages of textbooks to learn about science, has been tremendously interesting and really inspiring. So I encourage anyone who thinks they might be interested in this job to to get in touch. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senior, Mark Patalina, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuritewest.org.